Genesis chapter 6, picking up verse 13. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make thee an ark of gopher wood, rooms shalt thou make in the ark, and shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. And this is the fashion which thou shalt make it of. The length of the ark shall be three hundred cubits, the breadth of it fifty cubits, and the height of it thirty cubits. A window shalt thou make to the ark, and in a cubit shalt thou finish it above. And the door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof, with lower, second, and third stories shalt thou make it. And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh wherein is the breath of life from under heaven. And everything that is in the earth shall die. But with thee will I establish my covenant, and thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons and thy wives and thy sons' wives with thee. And of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort shalt thou bring into the ark to keep them alive with thee. They shall be male and female." Of fowls after their kind, and of cattle after their kind, of every creeping thing of the earth after his kind, two of every sort shall come unto thee to keep them alive. And take thou unto thee of all food that is eaten, and thou shalt gather it to thee, and it shall be food for thee and for them. Thus did Noah according to all that God commanded him, so did he. Chapter 7. And the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark, for thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. Of every clean beast thou shalt, make, shalt, thou shalt take to thee by sevens, the male and his female, and of beasts that are not clean by two, the male and his female. Of fowls also of the air by sevens, the male and the female, to keep seed alive upon the face of all the earth. For yet seven days, and I will cause it to rain upon the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living substance that I have will I destroy from off the face of the earth. And Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. And Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of waters was upon the earth. And Noah went in, and his sons, and his wives, and his wife and his son's wives with him into the ark because of the waters of the flood. Of clean beasts and of beasts that were not clean and of fowls and of everything that creepeth upon the earth. There went in two and two unto Noah into the ark, the male and the female, as God had commanded Noah. And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were upon the earth. In the six hundredth year of Noah's life, in the second month, the seventeenth day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened. And the rain was upon the earth forty days and forty nights. In the selfsame day entered Noah, and Shem, and Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and Noah's wives, and the three wives of his sons with them into the ark. They, and every beast after his kind, and all the cattle after their kind, and every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth after his kind, and every fowl after his kind, every bird of every sort. And they went in unto Noah into the ark, 
two and two of all flesh, wherein is the breath of life. And they that went in, went in, male and female, of all flesh, as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. And all God's children said, Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray thee now that you would open up your word unto us, compass about our hearts, give us a measure of thy spirit that we might appreciate and understand the gospel again. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, last week I had made mention of the sons of God that we see in Genesis chapter 6, verse 2, and so I wanted to mention them again in so much as I didn't really develop it. I simply made the statement that the sons of God were Christians. And so I want to show you some scripture that bears that out. Certainly it is true today because in the New Testament, the Lord says that, um, says that very clearly. In Genesis 6, uh, 2, verse, uh, we read that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. Now, of us, of Christians, God says that we are the sons of God. You're all familiar with 1 John chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. And we read, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Behold, beloved, now are we the sons of God. So the scripture says very clearly that right now in your regenerated state, you are a son of God. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 and 11, again, this point is brought forth, and it says, For it became him, that would be God the Father, it became God the Father, for whom all are all things, and by whom are all things, excuse me, um, in bringing many sons to glory. So we are brought by the Father to glory, and he speaks of us as being sons. Of Christ, the very next verse says, um, For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified, which means separated unto God, the Christians are separated unto God, are all one, for which cause he, that would be Christ, are not ashamed to call them brethren. So we are told that we are sons of God for, uh, in two ways, in this context that we are sons of the Father, and in so much as Jesus is the Son of God, we are said to be his brother, so we are um, sons of God in that context of, as well. And so we should appreciate that we are sons of God by virtue of adoption. And the scripture says that we cry unto our Heavenly Father, Abba, Father. So we have this wonderful personal relationship with God the Father through God the Son, and it's uh, one by virtue of adoption. He has adopted us unto himself, and we are said to be sons of God with a small s. Now, we see that in Genesis 6, verse 2, that um, the sons of God, the Christians, were taking for wives of the daughters of men, that would be non-believers, um, of all that they chose. So we can appreciate that, as God has warned elsewhere in Scripture, and as I mentioned last week, when a Christian marries a non-Christian, the Christian's heart is inclined to be turned away from God. And then there's going to be a... Um, uh, the Christian whose heart's been turned from God is going to struggle in his relationship with the Lord. It's going to make the marriage between the two um, very difficult because, as I said before, they are in two different camps. One's in the kingdom of light, one's in the kingdom of darkness. But as Scripture warns, uh, just as happens to happen to Solomon where his heart was turned from God because of his various wives, and he had actually set up temples, uh, idols in the temple, so too will men um, turn their hearts from God. So what we see, the result of which we should appreciate here is being that their hearts were turned away from God. We see a blurring 
and an indistinction between the two lines, the line that came from Cain and the line that comes from Seth. And again, we quote it from Scripture where it says that evil communication um, corrupt good manners. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Both lines terminate in a man with the same name. That helps us appreciate again the indistinction between these two lines of people. And so that while evil was increasing across the face of the earth as man went out, it begins to accelerate because now you have what um, 1 Corinthians would refer to as carnal Christians. You have Christians that are not behaving themselves as God would have them to behave, and they are behaving like non-believers. And so that because of the universality of evil conduct and its fruits that it bears, we see that God aggressively intervenes in the life of men and in the earth. So what does he do? Again, from last week, he shortens the lifespan of men and he brings death and judgment closer to men. So lifespans were an average of around 900 years. He reduces it now to around 120 years. And this, of course, will have a sobering effect upon all men because if you're 200 years old and you're thinking you've got another 700 years to live, judgment is a long way off. Death is a long way off. And so you're emboldened to do sin. Scripture teaches us that everyone is in bondage to fear of death. And why is that? Because men know that it is given unto them once to die and then judgment. They know that when they die that they will face judgment. And so they are in bondage to fear of death, which is why you have people taking quite a number of medicines to prolong their life. They take blood thinners so that they're... Uh, anyway, you're familiar with that. If you have elderly parents, you know the bottles of pills they have in their cabinets. That's, of course, to push off judgment. So God reduces the lifespan of man, brings judgment closer to them, so that should have a sobering effect on them, and they're less inclined to sin as they were, thinking judgment is but 700 years out. Now... Shortening lifespan also has the effect of mercifully reducing the eternal punishment and suffering of men due their sins, and therefore they incur less wrath of God. Now this comes from Romans chapter 2. I did not quote this last week, so I wanted to set it before us this morning. Romans chapter 2, verses 4 and 6, speaks about how people have despised the riches of God's goodness and forbearance and long-suffering and what they have done after their hard and impenitent hearts have treasured up unto themselves wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, verse 6 of Romans chapter 2, who will render to every man according to his deeds. So what this, the Lord is teaching us here is that as you go throughout your life and you engage in sin and, and evil activity, you store up wrath treasure up, store up wrath against yourself that will be revealed to you on the day when you are judged and you come before the throne of judgment. God will reveal his righteousness to you at that time when he pours out his wrath upon you for all of the things that you have done um, throughout the course of your lifetime. So a longer lifespan means more evil deeds, more treasure of wrath, uh, to be heaped upon you upon your day of judgment. So shorter lifespans really is mercy of God upon all people. Now, we can appreciate that the scripture says whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of scriptures might have hope. 
God records things in the Scripture for us that we would, be, we would benefit from it, and the flood is certainly one of those things. And to help us appreciate that, he talks about it in 2 Peter chapter 3 and also in Luke chapter 17 and sets before us um, God's righteousness in the context of spiritual parallels between what took place in Genesis chapter 6 and 7 and 8 and what took place in Genesis 19 in terms of Sodom and Gomorrah and what will take place when the Lord comes at the last day. People will continue their lives as they have always lived them, eating and drinking and giving in marriage. They go out to work. They just engage themselves in all about their daily activities until the day the Lord comes. Just as it was in Noah's day when people were engaged in those activities and then God shut the door, just as people were engaged in uh, normal activities during Sodom and Gomorrah when God poured out judgment on that day, so shall it be in the last day. So... The Lord has warned us, and he has said that he has given us examples in his scripture that we should definitely heed. Now, in the scriptures, we read that Noah is said to be a preacher of righteousness. So God has telling us that when Noah was building the ark there, he was a preacher of righteousness. In uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, we read that, and it says, and God, We know that God spared not the old world, but he saved Noah, the eighth person, a, quote, preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Um, now, Noah, you'll recall, his name means rest. He was used of God to preach the gospel, which offers rest to everybody that believes in Christ and um, trusts the Lord and believes the things that the Lord teaches. Now, Noah himself was an example of somebody who is saved by grace. In Ephesians chapter 2, Verses 8 through 10, we read, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. That would be the faith is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. If anybody had reason to boast, I would say it would have been Noah who spent so many years laboring to build that ark. But Scripture tells us that it was by the grace of God that he did that thing. Verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Clearly, Noah was ordained unto that good work to build an ark um, so that his house would be saved. Now we read of Noah in Genesis chapter 7, verse 1. It says, And the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark, for, quote, Thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. God looking down on all the earth, and he sees righteousness in Noah in this generation, meaning he only sees it in Noah of all of the people that lived at that particular time in his generation. He's the only one that he sees as righteous. In verse 9 of Genesis chapter 6, it says, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. Again, the Lord's saying a very similar thing. Noah is just. He's judicially right with God. And he's perfect in his generation. Of the people that walked the earth at his time, God sees righteousness in him. He is just and he is perfect. And we talked about what that meant last week. And yet, Scripture tells us in Isaiah 64, 6, that all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. So how is it that Noah could be righteous, just, and perfect. Well, clearly it's not because of himself. Um, we read in verses 8 and 9 of Genesis chapter 6 the answer to the question, but Noah found 
grace in the eyes of the Lord. So we should appreciate that the methodology of salvation has never changed. It has always been by the grace of God. It has always been a gift of God. Nothing has changed. changed. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The methodology of salvation has never changed. There are those that hold to a dispensationalistic view that um, the methodology methodology by which a man might get right with God um, was through the law for a period of time, and yet the Scripture completely undermines that when it talks about how the gift of um, the promise was made to Abraham, you know, 400 years before the law came, and the law did not disannul that. Salvation has always been a gift of uh, God. Nothing has, has changed in that regard. The law, it says, as a matter of fact, is administration of condemnation and administration of, uh, of death. So all the law does is reveal that you are a sinner and in need of a Savior. So, again, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So God saw him as righteous before him. Um, in Jeremiah 51.10 and in Jeremiah 23, it helps us appreciate where that righteousness came from. In Jeremiah 51.10, it says, The Lord hath brought forth our righteousness. Come and let us declare in Zion the works of the work of the Lord our God. So a declaration of the work of the Lord is to preach Christ, who is our righteousness. So when the Lord brings forth our righteousness, what is he bringing forth or who is he bringing forth? He's bringing forth Christ. In Jeremiah 23, 6, it says, In his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. Those are um, synonyms for the church. And this is his name whereby he shall be called. The Lord our righteousness. That's the name of Christ. The Lord our righteousness. So declaring the work of the Lord is to declare his or God's righteousness and the means and agency by which his righteousness might be found in man. Now, how was that righteousness found in man? By faith, by virtue of imputation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, the Lord tells us, For he, God the Father, hath made him, that would be Christ, sin to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So to, to declare the righteousness of man is to declare the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness of God that was imputed to man by faith through grace. So for Noah to be a preacher of righteousness would mean that he has to be preaching about the depravity of man, and that man is evil and his thoughts are continuously evil, as the Scripture says before us here, and that because of man, because of man's sin, the wrath of God is upon them. The wrath of God is upon all men do sin. And so just as surely as I'm building this ark, Noah would say, so will God pour out his wrath upon man do his sin. We read in Hebrews chapter 11 that Noah was moved by fear. By faith he built the ark because he was moved by fear, believing that God was going to do what he said he would do, not seeing it, of course, but believing that God was going to do what he said he would do. So his message to the people is, if you want to live, you're going to have to get into the boat that I'm building. Now, whereas there has been a substitutionary offering since Adam first sinned, Noah undoubtedly preached Christ Jesus, the seed of the woman to come, as the substitutionary offering that would be accepted by God. Previous to Noah, there were people who understood this. We read in Genesis 20, uh, chapter 4, verse 26, it says that men called upon the name of the Lord. 
Genesis chapter 6, verse 2, says that they were, quote, sons of God. So we know that there were people who looked to Christ and identified themselves and identified him as the means and agency by which their sins would be expiated. You cannot be a Christian if you do not trust in Christ. You cannot be a son of God if you do not appreciate that your sins were imputed to him and his righteousness was imputed to you. So the scripture tells us that in so much as there were sons of God, we know that there were believers walking around and that the um, substitutionary offering, which was set up back in Genesis chapter 3, was understood and appreciated by these people. So, in a nutshell, Noah's message could have been, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God has said that he will destroy the earth because of sin. So, Believe what the Lord is saying, believe God, believe what he is preaching through me, and get into the ark. In 1 John 5.10, the Lord teaches us that he says, He that believeth not God hath made him a liar. So if you don't believe what God is saying, you are basically calling God a liar. And it, God, God is always speaks the truth. So if you don't believe what he is telling you, if you do not believe what's written in Scripture, you are essentially calling God a liar. So that is the response of people to Noah's preaching. So since Genesis chapter 3 and onward, there have been substitutionary offerings, which would be the record that God gave of his Son. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his son. So the scriptures narrowly focuses it down to, you need to believe what I'm teaching you about Christ in particular, about my son in particular. That you need to believe. If you don't believe that, then you are calling me a liar. And again, the substitutionary offering was set up all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, from Adam and Eve on downward. Um, so you need to believe that Christ is going to come and I am going to be the substitutionary offering in the stead of sinners that believe on me, that that individual is going to be the one who bears the wrath of God. So the world did not believe God, though he was speaking through Noah. They thought that Noah was a fool, just like people do today to those that preach the gospel. They think that they're a fool. When you preach the gospel... People that don't believe what you're sharing with them are calling God a liar, and they are thinking that you are a fool. They say to themselves, a loving God would never do such a thing as that. I mean, I'm a pretty good person, or that's a pretty good person. God is not going to cast somebody in hell for such a minor infraction as whatever they are doing. I mean, the Scripture says that every man will declare his own goodness, and that's what people do. Rather than... Um, Man being in, in the image of God, what they do is they create a God who is in their own image. They declare themselves to be more righteous than God. And so they set up a standard that, of course, they always cross the threshold of declaring themselves to be righteous before a truly righteous God. Um, but that's not the way it works. God will judge all sin um, everywhere he finds it, including if he finds it in his own son, whom he has imputed sin to for his people. So, again, Scripture tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, that the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. Preaching of the cross is to them that perish. It is foolishness. So what is the cross? It is God's judgment poured out upon his Son due the sins of certain men. It is a demonstration of his righteous wrath due sin. But nobody believed Noah, and nobody got into the ark. So if you think your ministry is unfruitful, take heart. 
Noah preached a hundred years building the ark, and he had not one convert. A hundred years preaching the gospel and not one convert. Scripture says that Noah's wife, Noah's sons, and his son's wife were blessed. And this is the point, a point I'm going to make here. It doesn't say this, but this is obvious. That they were blessed because of their relationship with Noah. Now, keep in mind that it was just Noah. It was only Noah that was seen to be righteous before God. It was only Noah that was said to be just and perfect in his generations. It was not said that of his wife or his three sons or his, um, his three sons' wives. So we should appreciate that Noah was the only one, but yet he did save his house. So we read again that in Genesis chapter one, 7, verse 1, it says, And the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark. For thee, speaking only of him, have I seen righteous before me in this generation. So <clears throat> there's another point we can take from the scriptures. As was true then, so is true today. That our families are blessed because of our relationship with God through Christ. There's a blessing that your family enjoys because of your relationship with Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14 says this rather clearly. It says, For the unbelieving husband, this is a case where people are unequally yoked. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, that would be a believing wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband, that would be by a believing husband, else were your children unclean, but now they are holy. So you can think about it as God puts a hedge around your house because you are the sole Christian in the house. So the whole family is blessed as a result of you and enjoys a certain measure, an additional measure of God's grace uh, because of your relationship with him. We see this also in Genesis chapter 30 on the occasion when Jacob wants to leave Laban and take his wives, plural, and all his children and his flocks and go back home. We read in verses 25 through 27 of Genesis chapter 30. And it came to pass when Rachel was born, uh, when Rachel had born Joseph, that Jacob said unto Laban, that would be his father-in-law, send me away that I may go unto mine own place and to my country. Give me my wives and my children for, I, for whom I have served thee and let me go for thou knowest my service which I have done thee. And Laban said unto him, I pray thee, if I have found favor in thine eyes, tarry, for I have learned by experience that the Lord hath blessed me for thy sake. So Laban, a non-believer, appreciates, can see experientially that he has been blessed because of Jacob. God is blessing Jacob, and he enjoys the fruits of that blessing in his flocks as well. Now, we also see this with respect to the life of Lot. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, we read that, speaking of God, and delivered just Lot. Now, that word just there doesn't mean only Lot. It means he was judicially right before God. It's a, sta it's a um, legal statement about his standing before God. And delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them and seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. So God removed Lot, and he removed Lot's wife and his two daughters from Sodom before he destroyed it. Now we know, sadly, that Lot's wife was destroyed because her heart was covetous. She left her heart in um, Sodom. And so God destroyed her because she turned and looked, indicating her covetous heart. So in a broader context, the world is blessed because of the elect of God. 
in terms of general providence to all, Jesus says that he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. So the world is blessed because of God's elect. Everything in this world that happens revolves around what is best for the elect. All things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. So God always has in view what is best for his children. The fact that we had a drought in California for many years, that was for our good. The fact that it's raining now and we're enjoying a very wet winter and complete with mudslides and sinkholes, that's all for our good. So, with respect to Noah, going back to him in our narrative here, I imagine when he was building the ark, he fielded lots of questions. If you've ever worked on a project in your garage, you know, the neighbors will often come by and ask you what you're doing. So I've no doubt they asked Noah a lot of questions. The ark was 300 cubits by 50 cubits wide by 50 cubits high. Now, coincidentally, that is a perfect size for nautical stability. It's been studied by uh, marine engineers, and that's a perfect size for nautical stability. So now here's a good question that somebody undoubtedly asked Noah, dripping with sarcasm. How are you going to get everybody into that boat? Okay, now this brings up another lesson in our narrative. Again, how are you going to fit everybody in that boat? Now, if you were Noah, how are you going to answer that question? I imagine there was probably dead silence. God knows exactly how many people are going to heed the preaching of the gospel and how many are going to get in that ark. And how many was that outside of Noah's family? It was a big zero. The ark is exactly the size it needed to be. With the exception of Noah's family, nobody got into that ark. So God teaches us another principle respecting his plan of salvation. It doesn't include everybody. In Luke chapter 14, verses 28 through 32, the Lord sets this principle before the, his audience. He says, For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first, and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? Lest happily, after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it will begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish it. That's very simple. You're going to build a house. You hire a contractor. He sets out a list of materials and the total cost required to build what you have um, planned to build. So, with respect to here, he's talking about himself, obviously. He's telling you that Christ is the foundation laid by God, and that God is going to build upon that foundation everything that he intends to build. He knows exactly what it's going to cost to build this tower. Christ, of course, is our high tower. Verse 31, Or what king, going to make war against another king, sitteth not down first, and consulteth whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is yet way off, he sendeth an ambassage, and desire conditions of peace. Now, who's he talking about here? He's, again, he's talking about himself. But of a truth, God is only sending himself one person to make war on all the world. And we, the church, are his ambassador or ambassadors preaching peace. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says that. It says, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, 
as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. In other words, unconditional surrender. Surrender to God or you're going to be destroyed. Be ye reconciled or be destroyed. Get in the boat, get in the ark, or be destroyed. And so Noah, in this context, is God's ambassador here. He's preaching peace. Get in the boat or you're going to be destroyed. So, respecting the size of the boat, God has given Noah specific instructions on what size to build the ark because God knows exactly what size the ark needs to be. He knew exactly how many people would hear and respond to Noah's preaching and, quote, come. Now, recall in Genesis 6.14, we covered this last week, the instructions are pitch it within and without with pitch. When Christ our ark went to the cross, God knew exactly how many people would be atoned for. He knew exactly how many people would be ransomed. He knew exactly how many people would be baptized into his death. The idea that Christ died for everyone or that the gospel call is open-ended is foreign to the Bible. The answer in terms of how many people Christ died for lies in how many animals would come into the ark. The Lord has set before us a parallel here. So how many uh, people did Christ die for? How many people did he atone for? That's the, Greek, that's the Hebrew word here for pitch in Genesis. How many people did he ransom? That's the second word for pitch in, Hebrew, uh, in the Hebrew there in Genesis 6.14. How many did he atone for and how many did he ransom? Only only for those people that God gave to him. In John 6, the Lord says, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. John six thirty seven, the Lord says, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. John six thirty nine. And this is the Father's will, which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again the last day. So how many animals came into the ark? Only those whom the Lord drew to it. In Genesis 6, verse 20, the Lord tells us that. Of fowls after their kind, and cattle after their kind, of every creeping thing of the earth after his kind, two of every sort, shall come unto thee to keep them alive, shall come unto thee to keep them alive. Noah didn't go around chasing after animals and trapping them and drag them into the ark. God sent them to Noah. They came to the ark because God drew them to the ark, placed it in their heart that that's where they needed to go. Just as he did that, drawing animals to the ark, he draws certain people to and gives them to Christ Jesus. Now, another way of teaching this truth, perhaps with greater clarity, is this. And this moves from the animal example to the people example. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, we read, By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark, quote, to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world, and being heir of the righteousness which is by faith. He prepared an ark to the savings of his house. So here we learn that Noah prepared an ark to the savings of his house. Seven people, which of course is the number of perfection, helping us to appreciate that God's plan is always perfect. 
Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6, describes Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing, the hope firm unto the end. So as, just as Noah had a house, Christ has a house, and Christ's house is the church. So as God sets before us this wonderful parallel in so much that Noah, as a type of Christ, saved his house by obeying God and preparing an ark, just as Christ did when he prepared a place for his house, the church, the elect, when he went to the cross. So God set these wonderful parallels before us here. So in either case, it was their house, Noah's house and Christ's house, and only their house that was saved. And in both cases, none were lost. None were lost. I'm going to read verses 13 through 16 of Genesis chapter 7. Genesis chapter 7, 13 through 16. In the selfsame day, that's the day it started to rain, the selfsame day entered Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them into the ark. They and every beast after his kind and all the cattle after their kind and every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth after his kind and every fowl after his kind every bird of every sort. And them that went into the ark, and they went in unto Noah, into the ark, they're coming to Noah in the ark, two and two of all flesh, wherein is the breath of life. And they that went in, went in, male and female of all flesh, as God had commanded him, and, quote, the Lord shut him in. The Lord shut him in. God shut them in the ark. He closed the door. All that went into the ark departed the world, judged by God, and safely landed in the new world. None were lost. There were none that could open that door and get back out. Jesus, as the antitype of the ark, says of himself, all which he, the Father, hath given me, I should lose nothing but should raise it up again at the last day. That's John, again, John 6, 39. All that he which he, the Father, hath given me, I should lose nothing, but raise it up again the last day. All those in Christ are shut up in him and safely brought through the wrath of God. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 and 22 helps us kind of appreciate Christ as an ark in so much his body is made reference to here where the Lord says, And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled, verse 22, in the body of his flesh through death, in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and unblameable and and unapprovable in his sight. So as we read in in, uh, Romans chapter 6 last week, we are buried with him in baptism into his death, and raised with him into newness of life. We are in Christ, and it was Christ who died for our benefit and brought us through uh, the wrath of God into glory. So all that entered into the ark are safely brought into the new world. Again, speaking of himself, Jesus says, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. So Noah's preaching, enter into the ark of Christ and you shall be saved. Something else we should appreciate here is that there was only one door in the ark. There was only one way in to the ark. 
In John 14, 6, Jesus says of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. The only way from the old world to the new world was through that one door into the one ark. The only way from this world or life to the new heaven and the new earth to eternal life and fellowship with the Father is through Christ Jesus. There were no lifeboats and there were no backup plans with respect to the ark. Only one way through judgment and to glory. And that one way is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, consistent with the work of Christ, we note that Noah was instructed to gather all the food necessary to feed those in the ark. In like manner, Christ feeds all those in himself, all the spiritual meat and drink needed to sustain us until we get to glory is to be found in the word of God, which is the euphemism for Christ. Christ has all that we need and gives us all that we need, is the source of all spiritual blessings in heavenly places that he confers upon his people to keep them, to sustain them, to preserve them until we come to glory. We need only come to him for that sustenance which he will freely give us. He will ever keep us by the power of God through faith ready to be revealed in the last time. And with that, I say amen.